Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast, interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. Sexual trafficking affects millions of people around the world. The victims are often the vulnerable women and children uprooted from their homes and forced into a cruel life of exploitation. But this is not just a problem of the developing world. It's also an all too common crime here in the United States. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today our guest has experience firsthand in fighting sexual trafficking. We're honored to have the Attorney General of Utah, Sean Reyes. Attorney General, welcome to Talks on Law. Thank you very much. Great to be here, Joel. First of all, you hear about sexual trafficking right. immediately, I imagine, something that's happening in Asia or Africa. How does this affect Americans? You know, I think that's a common reaction. I think if people even hear about it, and let me start there, I don't think people hear about sexual trafficking enough to begin with as a baseline. But if they do hear about it, they make the assumption that, yeah, it's going on in Thailand or the Philippines, some far-flung you know, third world country. But um, as you mentioned in your introduction, it is happening here amongst us. And one of the reasons why I believe that it's, that it's able to flourish is that because so few people realize that it's going on here, it's kind of hiding in plain sight in our own midst. You're sitting in Salt Lake City in Utah. It's not even a border state. How is Utah, how is sexual trafficking happening in your own state? And let me be clear, because I've grown up in Los Angeles. I've lived in uh, San Francisco area. I've lived in Chicago, major metropolitan areas. Utah, relatively speaking, very low crime, very beautiful place to live. So an all-around awesome state. <laughs> I don't want anybody. Great skiing. <laughs> great skiing. All right, you've, like done, you've done your plug for Utah. We love it. It's a we great love state. Utah. But... <laughs> Even in a place as relatively um, inconspicuous and relatively low population, this type of thing can flourish. And again, I think one of the reasons why it exists um, and has had some success in the past in Utah is because nobody can believe that in Salt Lake City, an otherwise very safe environment, that this kind of atrocity can even imaginably exist. So it does. One of the reasons, I mean, there's some practical reasons too. If you're trafficking, we get a lot of kind of a crossways with major highways. We get a lot of trafficking activity from the South coming up from Central South America and even Mexico. And we'll probably talk a little bit more about it later on, but we put so much emphasis over the last many years and, you know, rightly so on eradicating drug trafficking that the heat is so intense on that side People are finding that, hey, the human trafficking side, a lot less attention. Law enforcement is barely coming to grips with how to deal with it. The public barely knows about it. It doesn't register sort of in the societal conscience. So, hey, this is great. We'll just hang out here in Utah. We'll blend in, um, play the nice neighbor, and perpetrate, again, these horrors without anybody knowing about it. And that's one of the insidious things is that traffickers can do these things and look like and you know seem like decent neighbors. One thing you mentioned was exposure. Recently, you did something that 
brought a little more exposure to the, to this uh, topic, and maybe you can walk us through it. This sure. was a voyage that you took down to yeah. South America. It was definitely an adventure. I had dealt with some high-profile cases in the state of Utah that really opened my eyes to the, the horrors um, of trafficking and sort of the epidemic nature on a global scale. And an organization called Operation Underground Railroad, which is constituted of former federal government agents and military, so former Navy SEALs, um, HSI agents, CIA, FBI. Is this a not-for-profit organization? It's a not-for-profit organization. And all of them, I think, were in the true spirit of public service. They left their pensions, their jobs, their badges, their careers, all to be able to pursue this fight against child sex trafficking globally. Um, very laudable. Um, one thing they were frustrated by is the U.S. understandably has protocols and has treaties and one of those is that unless U.S. children are implicated in some of these investigations abroad, we can't allocate resources to go in, or at least it's been our position as a, as a country, the State Department and the Department of Justice, not to send our assets in. And so they finally said, without any um, you know, rancor towards the U.S. government, maybe with the skills that you've given us, we can complement what you're doing, because there's still a place for... The, the State Department to, to work um, internationally, but we will be freed from some of the restrictions. And it's, ha it's been a great model because heads of state now can call them directly without the trappings and the, the impediments. Maybe you that, can tell us about the sting that you were involved with. I mean, you know, we got a tip, ironically, from uh, a, a drug cartel in Cartagena, Colombia, that there was a heavy um, trafficking presence of little kids. And ostensibly, a former Miss Cartagena was using her influence and notoriety to lure little girls into a fake modeling school um, wow. under the pretenses that, you know, one year of modeling with our school will, will provide more income than both parents working together. And this is a way you can help all of your kids. And so parents um, were duped and in, unintentionally were giving up a lot of their, you know, precious kids. And there were um, dozens of them. They were being sold to Americans and a few Canadians, but primarily Americans, which make up the vast majority of the demand on the sexual so these tourism are Americans side. going down to Colombia. Flying down to Colombia. And instead of going on a cruise with their significant other, they're on a sex um, party trip. And they're setting up little sex parties along the way. And Carta was one of the, the hottest areas. You, you just walk off the plane or you stand on the beach for a couple of minutes and people would approach you. You want a little boy or a little girl? I mean, how much do you want to pay? More for a virgin, um, we can negotiate a price, we'll send them up to your room, you can order them like a slice of pizza. Just horrific, I mean, so dehumanizing. But interestingly, the drug dealers said, you know what, Colombian government, you do something about this or we're gonna take care of it ourselves. And the, if the drug dealers, the drug dealers were like, hey, we're honorable, right? I mean, we only sell <laughs> drugs but we don't hurt women and children. Comparatively. Relatively speaking honorable. to, you know, <laughs> in their mind. Um, and so the Colombian government reached out to OUR, which is the acronym for Operation Underground Railroad. And, um, and they invited me to participate in a sting wherein we would send some of our assets down to set up a, uh, a sex party um, and, uh, and, and take down that whole criminal enterprise. Um, it worked out very well. How does it work? Are you a fake rich businessman? Are you a... An American looking to, to 
Yes. Have a sleazy weekend? All of the above. We coordinate with local law enforcement. And so that was the beauty of it. The Colombian FBI, their local police, their Coast Guard, and their child and family service agents all just contracted with, I say contracted, there's no money exchanged. It's just, hey, OUR, will you come in, set up the operation, show us how to do it. And along the way, also teach us a little bit more about how to pass better laws, how to investigate and prosecute these cases, but empower us to be able to do these stings. And we used um, a couple of American assets. These are actually brave folks because they had no prior background in law enforcement or the military, but it was great because that made them so fresh. It gave them such an appeal. And so these traffickers greedily and readily accepted the deal to set up a very large sex party with about 20 Americans that we were bringing down. I was part of that group and they were going to bring all of the kids that they had to a little island. All of the kids that were available for sex, they groom them at a younger age, nine and 10, and they don't bring them. They, and when I say groom, they break them down psychologically, emotionally, they drug them, they beat them, they force, force them to watch pornography to make them pliant so that when the time comes, They'll do whatever. They're brainwashed into they're, this. They're profession. brainwashed into this into this whole horrible cycle of abuse. But our concern is, okay, if you're only going to bring the kids who are ready for sex that you're currently selling, what about the young ones? We want to get them all out. And if we don't take down the whole operation, then some parts of it might abscond and we might not be able you to go to back. Pull it up by the roots. By the roots. Very good. And so we had to expand our um, you know, our, our deception a little bit and said, you know what, instead of just a sex party, we'd like to, um, to build a sex hotel and invest. And so would you be interested? We'll bring millions, we'll create it. You guys provide the, the, the kids. Right before we went down, about a week, uh, we also found out that there were two splinter cells in neighboring cities and that there were probably another 30 or 40 kids. So in total, at the end of this, we ended up liberating about 123 or so young women primarily and some young boys in three cities, Cartagena and two neighboring cities. In this particular case, the, the, the jump that I went on in Cartagena, we had a little isolated island that we had rented and they brought all the kids there. We segregated them into a room. It was a large kind of cabana area. We had our own um, undercover agents protecting them. And then we sat at the table with the head traffickers, exchanged um, you know, money. They gave us the you know access to the kids told us all the horrible things that we could do to them, and we had cameras all over. The cameras are all hidden. They're all hidden. We had devices all over, hidden cameras. There was also a documentary that was being done by Jerry Mullen, who did Schindler's List with Steven Spielberg and um, other small movies like that Rain Man and Jurassic Park, and so that was part of it because we really wanted to educate the world, and so we didn't want to just have one takedown. We wanted to be able to to do that, and it was it was very successful. We never broke character. The traffickers never knew who we were. In fact, when we were all arrested together, we were screaming at them, you ratted us out. They're like, no, we didn't, we promise. We'll never do business with you, we know who you are. Um, and then they take them to the side, process them, take them off the island, and then they uncuff us. And they're like, let us, great you know, job, guys. They're going, great job. In the meantime, they sell it, right? You got face down in 130 degree sand with red ants biting you for about an hour and all that. But, you know, it's small price to pay for <laughs> liberating little, little kids. And the difference, Joel, two moments in all of that really kind of defined my passion for fighting this forever, my commitment that I'll do whatever I can do, no matter what, to try to eradicate human trafficking in all its forms. Before the takedown occurred, um, the traffickers brought out a couple of little girls that they had been grooming who had never 
been abused. How old yet. are these women? 10 or 11, it was hard to tell, but I think afterwards we found out they're 10 or 11. They're, they're kind of painted up with, with makeups. They were so scared, looking into their eyes, and they brought them out as gifts for El Jefe. He was the boss, he was the main buyer. He uh, is a very successful businessman who was a mutual friend of ours, and we sent him in. To, he to actually is a successful businessman. Yes, he's, and so, but again, it was easy for him to talk the talk and walk the walk. And we, we did set up fake LinkedIn pages, Facebook pages. We, we proceeded as we would any really good um, op that any of those um, high-level agencies would conduct. But safety's preeminent and paramount to us. He's sitting there, and they say, here are two little, these are two gifts for El Jefe. Since I can speak Spanish, I played the translator. And I guess I'm gruff-looking. And so I was the bodyguard for the Jefe. They said, <laughs> we wanted somebody ugly you know, and medicine. Oh, come on. And so, no, literally, I think uh, that, that's probably the criteria that they use. But it was, it gave me, I mean, a chance to sit right and understand the whole concept. But you had to stay in character. And it was so hard because these horrible people are hugging you and kissing you because they think you're business partners, not so much me with the boss. And, and you know, I just wanted to like bring their necks. I can't you know? imagine. You, you're like, just, but you have to stay calm and they bring these two little girls out, and it was the look in their eyes. It was the hopelessness. It was the fear, because they were offering them up to Hefe. And so contrast that image of those poor, innocent kids with the joy and exultation after the bad guys were processed and taken off the island. They had freed us, and we were going to head back to the, to the States on, on planes. They let the kids know. The Americans, they were here. They're your friends. They came to, to free you and take you back to your families. And they were singing songs in English and Spanish saying, God bless America. We love you, Americans. And these little girls, two same little girls were part of this group, crying and so happy and they were relieved. relieved now. They get to go home because they had been able to talk to their parents, but under duress, right? Literally a gun to their head, they would do videos on a weekly or bi-monthly basis to say, hey, everything's going great here at the modeling, at, at the modeling agency and the school. We've got great opportunities. We're going to be able to help feed all of our brothers and sisters. Um, and if they said or did anything, they would get you know um, disciplined and to anything to, to compromise the operation. So it was a it was a success in that in that sense. But let me let me finish with this because I know our times and I I could talk about this for hours. It's a powerful the, the, story. The, the the probably the most moving thing to me was not the success of that individual operation. And, and we didn't want anybody to know that I was even going. My, my um, participation was a secret until somebody found out and leaked it to the media and, uh, months and months and months later. What we really wanted to do was empower our partners there to start attacking that problem on their own. The local law enforcement. The local law enforcement. And so we had spent time training them, giving them resources that we use. And here's the beauty of it. Subsequent to that operation, they did about, I don't know, seven to ten more operations going after all of the sex trafficking in Cartagena. And six months later, OUR tried to conduct another operation and set up another sting. I wasn't on that particular detail when they, when they went down, but they came back and reported no one would sell us little kids anywhere there. Like, what? That's impossible. That's Cartagena. And they said, that's what we thought, too. When every person that we asked, they People said... were afraid. They said, these Americans came down and all got arrested. And since then, everybody, they've been, like, law enforcement's gone crazy. They've been arresting everybody who sells little kids. You can't buy kids for sex here in Cartagena anymore. 
And when I heard that, I thought, if you can do that in Carta, and, and look, I'm not trying to be, um, again, uh, critical of Colombia or Cartagena. It's beautiful people, beautiful culture. But that was such a part of that environment. And now it's gone. And, and Cali and Bogota, they're figuring it out. And they're, they're using the same techniques. And they're, they're cross-training each other. If we can eradicate that in Colombia, I think someday we can do it in Thailand. We can do it in the Philippines. We can do it all over the world in the subcontinent of Africa can do it anywhere in the Middle East and South America. And that's my great hope is to partner with all these nonprofits and NGOs around the world that are getting assets to victims, that are getting resources to, the, to those who are liberated to help them start to heal and get their lives back. And while they're doing that, educate people on the front end to be more aware of this so we can prevent this from happening. And for those that are you know, right now involved in it, liberate the victims and go after the traffickers. But I truly believe that we could make, we could eradicate it someday. And maybe that is Pollyanna thinking, we're sure going to try. And You talked about a couple of different aspects of this problem. One is supply. And that was something yeah. that you guys were really going after in this trip to Cartagena. And the other topic that we should discuss as well is the issue of demand. And here you see the more direct connection to the United States, you mentioned a lot of these perpetrators or the, the right. clients of the traffic. The Johns. The Johns right. are unfortunately Americans. So what, why don't we take a look as well, first of all, what laws are implicated for Americans uh, to go overseas and commit these crimes? There are a number of different laws. Fortunately, um, back in 2000, the Trafficking Victim Protection Act was passed. And since then, there have been, I can't remember exactly, a number of reauthorizations, each new iteration of this law, giving more and more tools and resources to prosecutors and um, investigative agencies, um, to education, to even things like Amber Alerts, because trafficking touches on so many other aspects of abuse, too. So sometimes I feel it's unfair to just focus on trafficking as if it were this one thing in isolation. It, it, it deals with prostitution. It deals with child abuse. It deals with all sorts of other different types of child crimes. Pornography. I believe one of the reasons why human trafficking, in addition to the you know, sort of relative low risk and the high reward, is also the proliferation and accessibility of like child pornography. It's become so almost porn, ubiquitous the... in our in our society. And um, you know, groups like Fight the New Drug, which is an international other nonprofit group, they happen to be based in Utah, but they've been doing great work for seven or eight years. Widely recognized. Time magazine recently covered them. Getting back to the laws, there are a number of different laws. There's the the Man Act that prohibits um, transportation of children and, and adults across state lines and across um, uh, jurisdictional borders um, for the selling of, of sex. We passed the PROTECT Act. We passed um, uh, International Megan's Law has been something that we've been trying to get passed. What was Megan's Law? You know, Megan's Law was a reporting um, requirement here in the U.S., child sex offenders, so that states would know as these um, known contact offenders traveled is and it relocated. That, that, that the sex offenders, this isn't the requirement that they knock on the door of their neighbors and say, hey, I'm a, 
convicted sex offender. It's it's part of that. It's part, part of, that. of the um, that that whole um, disclosure environment, which which is great because domestically we've now embraced that. The international Megan's law would be an extension of that, saying, "Look, if we know that there is a traveler who is a convicted child sex offender in the United States, we we can right now and often do." Um, by a courtesy, contact uh, a neighboring country to let them know. Megan's Law would make that a requirement both ways. If somebody from another country, um, use Colombia for instance, if our friends there in law enforcement knew that they had a convicted child rapist coming to the U.S., they would let us know. That doesn't mean we violate their civil rights or do things unconstitutionally. It just helps us understand where they're going to be, and, um, there, are, and do, there are civil liberties questions that are being raised, but it, it's yeah. another tool in the. And then the we can talk about some of that too, because there's always a balance. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of a, a libertarian at heart, and I don't want the government, um, uh, you know, overstepping its bounds. But there is a there is a fine line, and in this case, I think Megan's law is, is simple. Or the international Megan's law is a good exercise and a good allocation of resources just to be able to help each other out, especially the Trafficking Victim Protection Reauthorization Act. That, in each of its new forms, has afforded us more and more protections for victims because here is a very ironic thing and kind of twisted. For years, even if we were able to liberate, uh, let's say an adult woman from the world of human trafficking, the criminal justice system often treated her worse in the end than even the trafficker. The so ju- she would be hit with she'd be hit with I prostitution. Mean, all of all of the different charges, or over the years under duress, um, if they'd run in, if they're you know if the enterprise had run into legal issues or problems, they would pin it on one particular um, uh, you know person or a number of them. There is actually a term. Um, you know, not you know. Excuse the vulgarity, but the, the, it's the real in the life, and they they would call her the bottom bitch, which sounds pejorative, like she's at the bottom. Actually, she was the she's the one often at the top, helping to um, you know new recruits acclimate, taking care of them. But she also took the rap if anything went down against the enterprise. A quick break for those who are listening for CLE MCLE credit in California. The code for this interview is 011117. Again, that's 011117. And now back to the interview. So this was one of the the victims, if you will, who also had a joint role in management of the enterprise. Joint role management. But again, not because she wanted to. Um, in fact, most of the time they were trying to do everything they could to protect the, the women who were recruited in there. But what else were they going to do? They tried to leave. They were threatened to be killed. And like any abusive situation, they, many of them believed they had nothing else to go to. Law enforcement also didn't understand, I think up until maybe a decade ago, we, we really didn't even start focusing on this as a, a separate species of kind of, well, that's just you know, those are just women. They make choices. They're, you know, they, they, they're prostitutes. They could be doing other things. They, they could get out of those situations if they weren't weak and all of those fallacies and misperceptions. And now we're fortunately 
hopefully a little more enlightened and coming to terms with, no, these are victims from the beginning. They don't, they don't wake up and say, you know, I think this would be great to be beaten, abused, and raped. And I'm not saying this again to be sensational. Some of these folks, some of these victims, not just hundreds of times, but thousands or tens of thousands of times. I testified in Congress last year with a young lady from Mexico who is now in her early 20s and, and has really kind of recaptured her life now that she's been liberated from trafficking. But from the time she was 14 to, I think it was about 19 years old to maybe five years, she testified in front of our congressmen and women that she was forced to sleep with over 40,000 different men. 40, and if you do 000. the math, it sounds impossible. Multiple and The first time I heard that, I, or numbers like that, when I was first starting to get educated about the subject, I thought, come on, you're just saying that to try it. I get it, you're, you're, you're trying to raise awareness, but you know, don't you lose a little bit of credibility throwing numbers out like that? Well, now I understand that's not even on the, the highest side. I've dealt with victims who've been abused even more than that. And if you do the math, that's maybe you know, 20, 30, 40 times a day, seven days a week. But these are just men lining up one after another. Um, and this, volume, this, this happened. It's a volume business. business, absolutely. And there's an adage which is kind of common amongst traffickers, and it's so telling, but it's, it's, it's horribly disturbing as well. You can sell drugs only once, but you can sell a little kid, you know, a hundred times or a thousand times. Um, maybe in an illegal adoption, it's only once. Maybe if you're a terrorist and you're buying a little kid up to be a a suicide bomber, they, they do this, pay 300 bucks, strap a bomb to them, send them into an enemy encampment. Maybe it's a warlord somewhere in third world country. Maybe you're only buying them once, but in the sex trade, you're selling them over and over and over again. And again, the, the, the revenues and the profits are so high. We know that it's the fastest growing criminal enterprise in the world, it being Some estimates as high as $150 billion. That's right. Truly, Joel, I think that's low. Um, why is that? We don't get real-time information. Uh, you know, I joke sometimes that the, the traffickers don't respond to our survey monkeys. So we, it's really hard to, to, to capture and get a, a true feel. But, but just having now worked in this environment for a few years, I believe that it has caught up to or perhaps even eclipsed drug smuggling, drug trafficking, as the most lucrative criminal enterprise in the world. And so, again, if you can make that much money and nobody's even you know, out there looking for you, why is that? Because resources are, aren't necessarily allocated yet, notwithstanding some of yeah. the laws that we have. It's, it's a great business um, opportunity. And it's sometimes a hard case to prove when the victim, as you say, sometimes wants to testify yeah on the behalf of her abuser. Often, that's one dynamic. Often the victims don't want to testify at all. And that's afraid. probably because they're afraid, not just for themselves. Most of the time they're afraid for their families. You know, in the, in, in the world of trafficking and, and, and in cycles of abuse, there's another common phrase. Human being will, will suffer almost any indignity, any pain, any atrocity, if it's to protect a, a family member. And so very often they will not testify or not be willing to testify. Because they're afraid for... Because they're afraid that their family and their country of origin is in danger. 
and the and the the perps do a good job exploiting that. But often they'll take something that that's uh, that people love and like a, a family pet, and they'll go out and in front of the um, in front of the victim, shoot the family dog, and say, "Hey, you want that to happen to your mom or dad?" So we're talking about sometimes someone who's been brought in from another country. Oftentimes it's it's kids or even um, adults who are um, trafficked in their own homes. Criminal cases are always difficult to gather the evidence, to marshal the evidence, to put a case together. And um, in many of these cases, it's, they're, they're very long cases with a lot of surveillance. We have to be able to um, have witnesses who are willing to come forward. As you mentioned, often, um, kind of Stockholm Syndrome-esque, they will protect the perps because that's the only thing that they have. Or they strongly Maybe believe... they don't know that the police are on their side. They don't know, or they don't believe that... In the end, they, they believe that the system will fail them and that... If somehow that guy gets out who's been pimping them out, then he's going to take it out on them. He is going to abuse them even, um, worse. even even worse. So why take the risk? They don't have a lot of faith in law enforcement in the system. Again, because historically law enforcement hasn't, hasn't been focused on the victims. That's why our agency takes a very victim-centered approach. And I will not bring cases, even when I even if I have good evidence unless I feel like those victims are willing and safe and their families are safe. So we will not pursue a trafficking case that puts the, that victims, puts the at victims at risk again. However, we will try to get that, get to the criminal organization through other means. They're oftentimes white collar um, charges that we could bring. Not paying taxes. Money laundering money without laundering. paying taxes, right? The kind of um, sort Structuring. of structuring what, what sort of took the Cosa Nostra down in, mm-hmm. in, in parts, uh, these types of RICO um, cases. Because to me, getting the victims out of that environment, getting them to a safe place, and giving them the, the chance to start to put their lives back together and heal, that's of preeminent importance. But we do want to get the, the perps. And so if I can, we try to, we try to find other ways to do it. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.